0: Welcome to episode 259 of Cinematary, I'm your host Zach Dennis and I'm here with Dylan Moore and Nathan Smith and in today's episode we will be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one and in part two we will be talking about the 1957 film Piazza. Uh, But quick notes before we get into the first part We got some new reviews up on the website Uh, Reed wrote about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood Which I know is uh, not being talked about a lot online So it's good that uh, somebody's (laughs) making the plunge to talk about it a little bit uh, Andrew talked about this film a bit last week, but his review of The Mountain, the new Rick Alverson film, is on the website, and he claims that he is the person to talk about this since it's a it's a slow movie about masculinity, and he did a 40-minute essay about slow cinema and masculinity. So if, the, if that's the uh, endorsement you want, there you go. And then finally, we have a review of Hobbs and Shaw by Logan Kinney, talking about uh, how that fits into the film Fast and Furious canon and then reminisces a little bit on Missing Paul Walker uh, but as always uh, check those out on Cinematary.com we're going to have a new Film Theory and Chill coming up on the Patreon site so if, you, if you've if you not signed up for that please do uh and uh, take part in that. It's going to be fun again. But let's go ahead and jump into movies that we saw this week. I wanted to kick it off with a relatively new release. It's played a little bit around the country. Um, has been kind of popping up in different places. And that is the documentary Amazing Grace. It's directed by Sidney Pollock. Uh, he had directed it in... The '70s, when the actual filming took place, and there was a lot of behind-the-scenes uh, drama. Aretha Franklin, who is the subject of the documentary, did not want it aired, and so when she passed away recently, they just, they you know put this thing back together and released it. Uh, but this the documentary follows the recording of her best-selling gospel album "Amazing Grace," which she uh, records at a church in Los Angeles and. Uh, along with the church choir and the Reverend James Cleveland who accompanies her on a number of songs. And <clears throat> it was uh it was kind of an interesting documentary uh for being like this. I was kind of thinking a lot about comparing it to the uh, documentary concert film type uh hybrid that came out earlier this year Homecoming by Beyoncé. And the style of performance that both of these artists have. Um, you know, the you know homecoming, which possibly might might be my favorite movie so far of this year, just has this like percussive uh, you know motion the entire time. Beyonce always feels very in tune with the performers around her as well as the audience and is, is kind of, uh, you know, working off both of those all at the same time and, and really kind of making this, like, one uh, cohesive, you know, experience between all three of the parties kind of all working together. And Amazing Grace also has, like, this very communal, um, you know, lack of a pun, religious effect to it because you just completely become engrossed in, like, the... the performances that Aretha and the the different performers are putting on but Franklin is a much more like reserved performer and so while uh, while the audience is still just engrossed kind of in her presence and the way that her voice is just you know capturing these these songs in ways that they haven't heard before she doesn't necess- like she doesn't necessarily like engage with the audience like you see in something like a beyond in, in Beyonce's film homecoming she's very um, we we talked about it with a group after the movie and we were talking about whether she was just kind of reserved and away from the performance or the way i read it was she was just much more like she was just focused she was completely like clued in i mean it kind of reminded me of like an athlete where she she didn't really like wasn't engaged with any distractions the only time really uh, throughout the entire documentary documentary you see her kind of break from this focus is when her father who is also a, a reverend comes up to the podium and talks a bit about her and talks about uh, her early life before she uh, takes part in another song and then she finally kind of breaks this near the end where she uh you have the reverend james cleveland speaking at the at the front and aretha has like this moment where like between the speech that cleveland's making she's like uh she begins to like respond in in like in song uh which i feel like will be very relevant to the movie we talk about in part two but she like like starts to kind of respond in song and then breaks into this final uh this final piece where it's like she finally just loses all of the uh you know the anxiety and the focus that she's had for this performance, probably for so long, and just completely lets loose and like engages with the church choir that's behind her, and finally like uh, becomes a part of this, this you know celebration, this event that she's been uh, you know the focal point of for for the two days that they were filming and, and having these this concert happen. Um, and so it was just kind of an interesting experience. You know Aretha Franklin is such is, is this kind of figure that so many people have a relationship with because of her music and uh, because of the impact that has and kind of watching her there's one sequence similar to homecoming where it cuts it has this incredible match cut where it match cuts her uh, singing this part of the song and in the performance and it match cuts to her singing you know picking up that from that point in the song in the rehearsal and you see a little bit of the behind the scenes of them setting this thing up, but not nearly as much as you do in homecoming. And it's kind of, you know, it's, it's interesting to see this figure as, as this, uh, someone who, or at least just kind of the, the differences in performance. But at the same time, I feel like there's both eliciting the same, uh, reaction from the audience. The audience is, is just as engaged in both films, but, um, it's interesting how they are reacting to these, these performers and how these two performers are using their gifts, whether it's in their kind of the physicality or it's in the way that they're singing in order to, uh, you know, work with this audience. So I would recommend seeing amazing grace. If you're, you know, if you're an Aretha Franklin fan, or if you're just kind of interested in seeing this this lost film, Sidney Pollack, uh, it's it's really kind of fun to watch because you have the the documentary crew of various cameras and such bouncing around the scene. You know, it's not like it's not as it's not nearly as professional as something like Homecoming, where you don't see any cameras or any people who are like associated with the production. In this one, you constantly see like these uh, cameraman uh, having to kind of like squat in these strange positions positions to like get the shot and uh you know it'll cut to like behind the choir and behind Aretha singing and like you have this tower like within the church where the camera is like mounted up on it uh it's kind of fun to see like this kind of almost DIY I think this was the first uh really like documentary like live filming that cindy Pollock had done and it's kind of it's kind of fun to see it uh, just for that element as well but amazing grace i believe it'll be streaming and available that way pretty soon but i would recommend it it's uh it, you know if you have find find a nice big tv with nice speakers and uh really just kind of suck it in
1: yeah, that was uh, one of the movies this year that I felt bad if if I was gonna try to see it, not seeing it in theaters, right? Or I mean, as you said with the movie is trying to generate this communal experience or at least document one. So it's like to then see it with a whole bunch of people feels a little bit more appropriate. But uh yeah, I mean it still sounds like a, a good a good time if um you're just trying to catch it as on a big screen as possible. I mean, it's like
0: <laughs> it's like any other concert film. Like you want to watch it on this big screen because I mean, if if you're gonna watch like Stop Making Sense or something, you want to like watch it on this giant screen with these giant, you know, really like feel the concert. Um, and it seems to have generated kind of that, like like that's what's been so you know crazy about this film is it's generated this communal experience as the people watching the people watching this concert. You know, <laughs> right. it's it's like it's like multi layers because uh, somebody was telling me about how she went and saw it. Uh, in a nearby town like 30 minutes out of Savannah in South Carolina and that when she went they had like bused, uh women from black churches to the theater to catch this because it was only going to be there for the week and that it was just like a packed house and everybody was you know singing along and crying and just becoming so uh, engrossed in, in the concert and it was so- somewhat of the of the same thing for this one um, there there weren't uh, they, they weren't bringing in any, any uh, people from black churches for this screening but But it was a brand new theater in town it like it was almost a packed house and everybody was just kind of you know sucked into just the the majesty of the whole thing it was kind of it it, it, seeing it on a big screen with a lot of people uh is worthwhile and kind of it's one of those
1: experience films that i don't know people people seem to miss out on it's it's a bummer yeah i mean i imagine too as a a document from the 70s that it still might get a repertory screenings in the future
0: yeah i I hope so because i mean it does it feels like this it feels like the 70s film you know it it doesn't it's not like one where they restored it and you kind of can feel the digital marks of it um it, it does feel it i mean it's kind of like when netflix put the other side of the wind the orson welles movie out where it's like this you know 60s 70s film that just pops out in 2018
1: 2019 <laughs> that's, that's yeah, something deep. like
0: that yeah yeah uh, I won't speak to the quality of the other side of the winter, my perception of the quality but it still like has that aesthetic feel um Speaking to a uh, another movie I caught this weekend that actually was made in the 70s, so it feels like a 70s movie, is uh, Dog Day Afternoon, the uh, film by Sidney Lumet that stars Al Pacino. Um, it's based on the true story of attempted bank robbers in Brooklyn. Uh, in the film, uh, Al Pacino is Sonny, then John Cazale uh, is Sal, and they attempt to... Rob this bank in Brooklyn at the kind of near the end of the day, like five o'clock as they're closing down. But the, (laughs) it, it, it's, it's soon just, you know, slowly unravels. One of the members who had joined them on the bank heist uh, flakes out like right at the beginning. So he has to leave. Um, they, the, the people within the bank are not situated correctly and are kind of questioning the, uh, (laughs) the The planning behind Sunny and Sal's attempt to, to rob this bank, uh, Sonny seems to have a knowledge of how banks work, but not necessarily how a heist works. Uh, there's this like really in, uh, entertaining sequence where they decide to finally put the bank tellers like in the vault, but and they're about to close the gate, you know, the gate to the vault. But one of the the women says, "Well, I can't be locked in here. I have to go to the bathroom." And so Al Pacino's like. <sighs> All right, well, fine, just go to the bathroom. Anybody else have to go? And then, like, four other ladies raise their hand. He's just like, well, you You can't all go to the bathroom. Like, that's not how this works. Uh, And just, like, the the ineptitude of them as they're trying to, to rob this bank is entertaining. And then you hit the point where they you know answer the phone look out the door and just about every police officer in brooklyn is has surrounded the place they've they've got on top of the roof uh of that building and across the building and uh, are now in this this standoff this hostage standoff with with the police and so for the pretty much the rest of the movie it's uh you jumping back and forth from a little bit from the cops across the street and how they're trying to bring Sonny out of the situation. And then Sonny and Sal within the bank and their interactions with the various uh, tellers and, and such. And, um, it was interesting, you know, getting a little bit of a of some context and backstory prior to watching the film. But, I mean, of course, outside of this being based on a true story and an event that actually happened three years before this movie was made, uh, you also had to have the context of the Amina uh, Butcher, I think, is Alita, the uh, the the prison the prison uh, killings were
2: Attica, Attica,
0: yeah. I knew it was like a... There was some sort of double letter in it. Uh, Attica, where... 41 prisoners were killed by police in New York, I think four or five years prior to the movie coming out. And so that becomes kind of a touch point of Sonny's battle with the cops and uh, another movie where like, you're watching the crowd kind of engage with this. Cause it is like, there is this perf- almost, I mean there he's acting the movie, but there's this performance value in Al Pacino, like performing as Sonny, whenever he you know leaves the bank and is engaging with the cops and the way he like works the crowd and the crowd works both with him and against him, uh, is really, is just, is, is just really engaging and, and entertaining and kind of, you know, you have these lulls where you're, you're, you're dealing more with the, the characters kind of interacting with one another and then they've you outside somehow. And, uh, there's all these, just these different factors. Uh, once you, you know, exit the building that just kind of, add to the the heightened tension of the film um i really enjoyed it though it's it's like this deep this really incredibly progressive movie in terms of its uh its its gender politics and the way it's looking at uh sexuality i mean this is 1975 and you you later learn that Sonny is trying to rob this bank in order to pay for his uh his as he tells them his wife but it is his uh his male partner played by chris uh, sarandon who is trying to get a sex change um but can't pay for the surgery and so that that plot line enters later in the film and it's interesting how the crowd reacts to learning that information and but how it also brings this uh this other group of allyship to, to sonny's cause um it, 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 I, I don't know. It's a, it's, it's a movie that 1975 still plays really well uh, currently. I mean, have, you, have any of you seen this
1: recently or seen it before? Yeah, I've seen it uh, a couple DMs. times. Um, to, that, to that scene that you're speaking of, I mean, the movie even like sets it up as an intentional confusion. I mean, because we meet his wife before we find out he has you know the male partner that uh, he was actually asking the police for to get on the phone to get him down there. Um, and so, I mean, like it puts the audience in suspense and then, yeah, once we figure it out, it's like, you know, cause some of it changes the P- PO view of like who the audience is trying to follow or what we're following. Cause it goes from that into the one, like pol- uh, police chief or whoever that's down there that's trying to actually like help Sonny, right. And so get through the experience. But, um, so, uh, yeah, that's, that's an interesting, interesting thing that comes out of a movie from 75 um and kind of gets the audience involved and like, oh, you see? See what you thought? You assumed something, didn't you? You're like, oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> uh,
0: well, but- and it's and it's interesting also because you can kind of tell the uh for lack of a better word, uh, uncomfortableness that the police officers have when they when they learn like what he's trying to get the money for, but you also see that they they find this to be their in route into solving the situation. Uh, it's it, kind of watching that that uh, that thought process go through their faces uh, it was kind of was kind of entertaining in itself. I think one uh you hear like one officer kind of in the back say something about like oh he's queer but <laughs> you would think that there would be this whole tide turn uh but it's it's kind of interesting to see them try to f- rationalize in term you know they're even though they're internally kind of feeling differently uh But, yeah, Dog Day Afternoon. Um, I don't know necessarily if it's streaming anywhere. I caught it in a theater, but, uh, yeah, I would recommend checking it out if you have not. It's a good summer movie Uh, while it's still hot outside. It's a great summer movie. Uh, I think Ash wrote about it for our Sweaty Movies canon, so uh, there you go. (laughs) Um, But I'm going to toss it over to Nathan, who has a movie to talk about.
2: Yeah, I didn't really watch many movies this week, but um, I did watch – the 1968 Western, Italian spaghetti Western, The Great Silence directed by Sergio Corbucci, who is perhaps best known for his movie Django um, which of course inspired a lot of other movies named Django or about characters named Django, including Quentin Tarantino's Django Unchained This film, The Great Silence, was also a big influence on Tarantino Um, The snowy look of the Hateful Eight is really Kind of taken from this film, um, which, unlike a lot of the other spaghetti westerns, you know, the term that we used to refer to that cycle of of westerns produced in Italy and generally filmed in Spain, um, this movie was not filmed in Spain, even though it is, you know, it falls in the cycle. It was filmed in the kind of southern part of the Alps um, in in northeast Italy, the uh, Dolomites. Um, So this really looks very, very different from A, just like generally any western that uh, you have seen, I have seen, um, but also you know it looks very different from the Sergio Leone movies um, and a lot of the other you know popular spaghetti westerns. Those movies are very dry and arid and and rugged, and this is is a, a very cold, unfeeling movie, um, a very unsparing, violent movie, and so uh, that just that landscape, you know, from the beginning, you know, seeing this just dark figure in this endless uh, you know supposed supposed to be Utah um, landscape is just I think like it's it's grabs your attention because it kind of upends your expectations of what a western is um because even though you know the the western united states is this vast landscape we do sort of i think have a certain kind of place in mind when we talk about westerns you know you have the sort of like uh kind of Badlands, like Chimney Rock, you know, big sort of formations, you know, the the endless sky of John Ford movies. Um, But this is a movie very much of its time, I feel, you know, very much of 1968, uh, allegedly inspired by the uh, assassinations of Che Guevara and Malcolm X. Um, So, you know, it's it, it, it I think is of a piece with films, you know, like Bonnie and Clyde, The Wild Bunch, you know the ends of easy rider night of the living dead all of these movies are end with these sort of like really nihilistic just like uh just you know, tear the movie to shreds kind of brutal scenes of violence where the main characters are gunned down. This is like very much also sort of in that mode. It's a a real downer of a movie um, and a movie that was meddled with by the producers that had a sort of difficult release in the United States that offended Daryl F. Zanuck when it was screened for him um, and which led them to refuse, led 20th Century Fox to refuse to distribute the movie in the U.S., though they did distribute... It outside of the U.S., um, you know. So this is, uh, and this, and this movie. Um is in Italian, but you know, it was released in an English ju- dub and a German dub, and it was just restored two years ago in a 4K restoration and was released by Film Movement. I caught it on Canopy um, where it was streaming. Um, so basically, to get to the story of this, yeah, <laughs> yeah so we have all this context, but to get to the story That's of this, good. basically, uh, The Great Silence refers to um, the protagonist of this movie, who is this lone drifter named Silence, who, when he was a child, his parents were murdered by this corrupt banker named Henry Pollicut and his throat was slit so he's you know mute has been mute pretty much his whole life um, but you know he's sort of roaming across the landscape trying to enforce some sense of justice in this hard cold world um, and so he comes back years later in 1898 in the middle of a blizzard to this to the town that he's from in Utah to the town of Snow Hill um, because of the blizzard Everybody in the town who, who, you know, for the most part are pretty poor, they have to steal to survive, and this same corrupt banker, Henry Pollicut, who killed Silence's parents and made him mute, um, has put a bounty on the heads of everyone in the town, pretty much, who steals, which is everyone. Um, So this groving gang of bounty hunters led by Klaus Kinski, um, you know, come to town and make their way gunning down, you know, just like families and, um, you know, just normal people. Um, So there's just like, just from the jump, you know, you know that this is kind of unlike any other Western, just because usually, at least in American Westerns, the violence is restricted to some strata of society you know like it's between criminals or it's between law and order and disorder you know it's very sort of clear opposing sides and there are certain people who do violence and there are certain people who you know are threatened by violence but who are ultimately rescued from it and not you know subject to violence in this movie Anyone and everyone can be hurt, maimed, killed, tortured. It's really just sort of like opening the field wide for like anything and everything. Um, so this guy, Silence, is uh, hired by a woman named Pauline whose husband has been murdered. Um, and you know, she hopes that that silence will be able to m- kill Klaus Kinski and his gang. Um, but Pauline and silence fall in love, you know, he's mute obviously. Um, so she's doing all the talking, but they they have a very steamy romance, which is rare for you know for the genre in general, but especially rare for Corbucci. was actually like the only love scene that he filmed in his entire career, supposedly at least in the westerns. Uh, I have not seen all of his films, so I will not verify that statement or stand by it. But supposedly, in something that I read, that's what he said. Um, but it's even more interesting because Pauline is. I think the only person in this town who's black. So not only, you know, is it a, a love scene between a, a mute man and a woman who can speak, it's an interracial love scene. So sort of, you know, very, very, you know, a movie that is concerned, I think with like the radical politics of the time and, and the, the efforts of the state and of capital to thwart radical politics, but it's also a very progressive movie, um, in it's romance, um, and, and, and the character relationships. um, so you know i was just as a kind of brief aside uh while, while watching this movie i started watching this movie you know just knowing by this movie film by reputation i didn't really know much about the plot um but my ears sort of perked up when i found out that it took place in utah at the end of the 19th century uh because i think as I, I probably mentioned on the the podcast before. I grew up Mormon, um, so so just kind of, you know, hearing that this is sort of in that world, in that milieu, was very interesting to me, and I was kind of waiting to see if there would maybe be any allusions to, you know, the characters' religious beliefs or anything like that. Um, this being an Italian movie, I figured that probably wouldn't happen. Though, according to the Wikipedia page in the English dub, they actually... Um, change some things a little bit so it kind of alludes to the fact that the characters are being killed not just because they're poor and have to steal food to survive but also because they're Mormon Um, and so just considering like the very brutal massacre that ends this movie and the kind of like history, the kind of history of of violence uh, against Mormons in American history that um, the American government engaged In even uh, that people don't really talk about. Um, That was just like kind of hit hard for me watching that. Um, But It is uh, a really, I think, really unlike any other Western I've seen, um, a really shocking movie, a really daring movie. It has this very sort of dreamy, you know, flashback fantastical kind of like murky quality to it. It almost reminded me in a sense of kind of like doing to the Western what John Borman's Point Point Blank from 1967 kind of does for the sort of, you know thriller sort of detective movie um, because that is a sort of very movie with a kind of very jagged sense of editing you have these sort of flashbacks butting in um, and disrupting the reality of the movie and sort of making you uncomfortable um, you know and you know detectives and action heroes are supposed to give you this sense of control and security but that movie is all about disrupting that and this movie is sort of doing that I think with like cowboys and sort of western heroes of just sort of like destabilizing the sense of security and control that those heroes offer us. Because in the end of this movie, all the heroes die. It's just this total is like... uh you know, it's, it's all, it's all just capital, you know, it's this movie very clearly links (laughs) violence and profit motive, you know, every violent, every murder in this movie is a transaction and money earned in somebody's pocket. Um, so I think it's just like really fascinating and radical in that regard. Um, and just a very beautiful movie to boot. Um, so Quentin Tarantino, got it right you know he's got some good taste sometimes he knows how to pick them this is a uh, i think a, a great movie and a movie that i'm excited to revisit in the future um
1: yeah the two other movies that that kind of reminds me of is a uh, day of the outlaw that came out in the 50s that um that was like really oh, yeah, snowy yeah. like at a certain point i mean the frame up of the movie is like uh people uh you know rob banks and then get kind of shut out into this kind of blizzard ghost town or what you know there's like very few people there but yet they're having to confront the town town people who live there and um yeah it gets really intense in like a like a, a bottle episode of a tv show or something like that where it's like it's all just gonna go to a boil because you know uh they all can't really escape from one another um and so uh, yeah that kind of blizzard setting uh generates that kind of thing right um but i was surprised because that was from the 50s and it's like you know, uh, as you say, an uncommon setting for a Western to have to deal with. Um And so that, or like something like uh, the second half of uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller where it gets like really snowy and depressing. <laughs> uh,
2: but, yeah. It's, it does remind me a little bit of McCabe just because you have this sort of like crumbling, decrepit town, you know, verging on ghost town, basically Um, where it's just like muddy and everybody's just like n- having a, a miserable time. Um.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, so at least day of the outlaw, what it does different, it sounds like compared to the real kind of dreamy qualities that great silence does. And what ultimately it is kind of like a tone that Altman plays in. we gave Mrs. Miller. It's like, there's a weird, like theatrical quality to, to day of the outlaw where it's like, it'll sit the camera back and you're just kind of absorbing this space. And there's like, it just feels like uncomfortable and dangerous you can't really get that dreaminess from it you just kind of like you want the people to be able to leave <laughs> because uh, uh, at least in the middle part of the movie they're they're all kind of stuck in this kind of bar you know setting so uh, it gets really uncomfortable as uh basically authority shifts sides when the uh, bank robbers show up so but cool yeah i want to check out the great silence that sounds interesting so you said the only place you can or that you had seen it was on canopy anywhere else um I don't know about
2: streaming. I mean, I know there's a Blu-ray, you know, that's out, that's that's you know, came out last year, I believe. Um so it's it's around um you know, the local library. Uh you know, Film Movement is a label that a lot of libraries and stuff get. So I feel like it's it's within yeah. reach.
1: How is uh Klaus Kinski in that movie? Did he do anything for you? You know,
2: he's 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 good, but he's um you know, a little bit more of a kind of marginal um, presence in it. I mean, you know, he is, you know, like the main villain, but he is, I do feel like in terms of, you know, in terms of like on a scale of one to Klaus Kinski, like he is actually (laughs) somewhat you know, more toned down. Um, and you know, he's still, you know, like actually I feel like this is maybe like the earliest movie that I've seen him in. I was about to um, say, cause yeah, he does I still can, look uh... like pretty young and like less haggard. So that was kind of interesting. Just seeing he, he have this like sort of youthful sort of gleam in his eye, which makes him like a little, just even more sinister almost just because, uh-huh. you know, like yeah. he's not like, Oh, haha, Like that crazy Klaus Kinski. You know, he's like still kind of a human being a little bit. Um, And so he, it just really, like, honestly, like, you really kind of, like, feel the, like, Nazi um, in him just because it's, like, he's this this more youthful guy with floppy hair. And so you just can kind of, like, see that character as a, like, goose stepper, you know. Um, So I think that, like, maybe there's something of that kind of, honestly, probably reading in this movie, too, of just this, like, literal holocaust uh, that happens in this movie. Um, So... Yeah. Anyways, brutal, movie. <laughs> brutal, brutal movie.
0: Uh, well, let's wrap up with, I'm sure, a much lighter movie. Uh, take take it away, Dylan.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Considering. Uh, so I, I saw a Buster Keaton movie. I caught it on YouTube because, uh, you know, at a certain point, copyright gets pretty loose. Uh, so you can check it out there. Um, Go West. It came out in 1925. I think it's like. Buster Keaton's third feature that he directed by himself. Cause you know, it's like either uh, uh it's Ernest Klein or whoever else that he ends up teaming up with, but basically, you know, him as Buster doing his own stunts more or less directs himself. It seems like, but um funny, considering that we we're just talking about a Western, this goes in kind of the opposite direction of Keaton playing a character more or less called friendless where he leaves New York. He's like, the first shot we see of him is like he's leaving a house uh, with all what seems like all of his stuff and like a cart. And he immediately goes to, uh, you know, a pawn shop or a store uh, to like trade it for whatever he can. Um, <laughs> and, you know, outside of the ridiculous banter he has with. Um, uh, the storekeeper or whatever, that he only ends up with like a picture of his mother that he has to buy back from him um, and You know, just like a loaf of bread and uh, a sausage or whatever to get him out on the road. And he just train hops uh, for a long time until he like he ends up uh, out west Uh, and whatever, of course, opens up with that. um, uh, Was it Graham Green? No, what's what's that guy's name? I can never remember the uh, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. that uh, Horace Greeley. Right. The, The guy says, go west, young man, that thing. Uh, so that's like there's like this weird I don't because I it kind of makes fun of it uh, ultimately, but it's like a weird statuesque opening where it's just like filmed in like a black background with a statue of Horace Greeley, like pointing out uh, frame uh, frame right with the quote more or less from him. Uh, um, but so like he ends up going there and it just, you know, imagine Buster trying to fit and be a cowboy out in the West. And that's kind of like the, the mass vast majority of the movie. And he earns his name or his moniker from this pretty clearly. Cause <laughs> basically like he has whatever uh, his normal or city clothes on, but as soon as he gets there, like some cattle hands were uh, ranch hands that were leaving. And he just like snags some of their clothes and puts it on and just like wanders up while like kind of inspecting, Uh, the ranch hands they're like this is how you be a cowboy and he immediately like uh, assumes this kind of uh, bow-legged stance and just wander up to the to the ranch owner to like ask for a job and he immediately like falls on his ass because he it's awkward and he's not (laughs) used to doing it um but more or less like he needs help or uh the rancher does and it's like yeah sure whatever go milk this cow and of course he's inept at it and it keeps going like that for for a while of him just not fitting in, not being a cowboy um, until at a certain point he ends up making a friend with a with a, a cow named Brown Eyes that ends up saving him from a, a bull attack. And. Really. Uh, it's it's a weirdly sweet connection that the movie makes uh, and uh, ultimately where the movie goes is this great. Uh, Madcap. Everybody uh, has to help get the stockyard of cattle into Los Angeles to sell or the rancher will be at a business. And of course, uh, you know, there's a rival rancher or whatever is like, you can't sell these cattle yet. You're going to screw me over. And so uh, all the ranch hands get like shoot away off the train and Buster is the only one that can you know, uh, corral the cattle through the streets of Los Angeles and he does it by himself and he didn't, he doesn't know how to do it properly. So he just literally goes through the streets of Los Angeles and disrupts literally everybody's shit. So it's like, you know, they all go every which way end up into like, uh, clothing stores and, uh, like movies, movie shops. And it's just, it's madness. And like, really at a certain point, this movie is, great to watch just just for them to try to figure it out. And that of course, the cops like (laughs) just slowly dawn on him, like uh, dawn on the cops. What exactly is going on? And they all get pissed off at Buster and chase after him. And, you know, uh, earlier on, Buster learns the main way to get a bull to like, steer them and get them to go the way they want is to have red on right so it has that conceit to it and the only thing that was big enough to like corral all the uh, cattle down the road is that in a costume shop that he's like also getting the kettle i was like do you have anything red And the only thing he finds after all the people that are in a store freak out because you know uh there's some bull that just kind of wandering in all all uh, haphazard and i sure where they are so um is a, de- a demon costume that's all red and that at a certain point in the movie he is running around down the streets of LA uh in a pointy uh horned tail demon costume that's all red that with bulls chasing after him with uh, like a trail of cops just holding on to him trying to like <laughs> uh slow him down and actually figure out what's going on so uh man it's it's a fun mess of a movie towards the end. So I um, <laughs> would recommend it and it's easy to recommend because it's on YouTube. So, um, you know, so there you go. 1925. And it's only like, you know, 69 minutes, solid 70. It's like nice. Easy to watch. Yep. <laughs> Thank you, Nathan. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, it's a good one. No, Justin he usually doesn't. doesn't. Uh, we're going to take a short break. You can watch
2: it. You know, uh, I, I'd suggest playing the Pet Shop Boys version of Go West on repeat over <laughs> the entirety of the movie.
1: That will be good. Definitely change the tone in a good way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in part two talking about Piazza after this. Hey, Cemetery listeners. Andrew here.
3: During this break in the show, I'd like to mention that Cemetery does want your money. You can give us your money at patreon.com cinematery where you can chip in a small fee of about $5 a month, you know, the price of a fancy coffee, in exchange for shout outs in every episode, the opportunity to choose movies we cover on the show, and bonus episodes every month in which we talk about more movies as well as other miscellaneous stuff. In the past, we've just been humbly asking for you to share the show and engage with us, and we would still love for you to do those things. You can tweet us at Cinematary, send us an email, uh, Z-A-C-H at Cinematary.com. Leave us a review on iTunes, all that stuff. But Cinematary has grown a ton in the past few years due to the hard work of a bunch of writers, myself included, who haven't been paid for their labor, which is sadly a pretty normal thing. We record things and write things for free. You listen to and read them for free, and the only people getting paid are like apple and google which is depressing so if you appreciate what we do if you feel like there's some sort of value being exchanged here and you'd like more of it help us normalize paying people by going to patreon.com slash cinematary and chipping in five dollars a month we would truly appreciate it thanks for listening now let's get back to the show
0: and we are back with part 2 of episode 259 of Cinematary in this part we will be continuing our young critics watch old movie series with 1957's Piazza uh, the film is directed and stars uh, Guru Dutt from a script by Abrar Al- Alvi uh, the film also stars Wahida. Raymond, uh, Mala Sinha and Johnny Walker easiest name in the entire uh, sheet we got here uh, Vijay uh, who's played by Guru Dutt writes unpopular poems about the destitute and poor ridiculed by his brothers and scorned by publishers Vijay finds encouragement in a sweet prostitute uh, Gulabo, when a homeless man wearing a coat VJ gave him is killed, Gulabo convinces a publisher to print his poems believing VJ to be dead. The poems are widely popular thanks to the myth conjured around his supposed death. When he reappears, he finds that few friends can be trusted. With the commercial success of thrillers such as Bazi, Jal, uh, Arpar, and C.I.D., as well as his comedy such as Mr. and Mrs. 55, Guru Dutt and his studio were financially secure and established at this point, and so from 1957 on, he could make uh, just about any movie he wanted to make, including this one. In the original ending, uh, Guru Dutt wanted to show that Vijay left, all, all, left the, uh, the place all alone, but on the distributor's insistence, the ending was changed. The film was originally titled Pias, which means thirst, but Guru Dutt later changed it to Piasa, which means the thirsters, to better describe the film. Uh, I got you know it really cleared it up for me uh, Guru Dutt wanted to film red light area scenes on location in Calcutta but the crew was was attacked by a group of pimps so unable to, to film then he uh, recreated sets on the basis of photos that they took in Calcutta It is also surmised the story of the film is based on the life of the film's lyricist, Sahir Ludhianvi, who had a failed affair with poet and writer Amrita Pritam. Uh, Piazza marked the last collaboration of the the long-lasting team of composer S.D. Berman and the lyricist, Sahir Ludhianvi. Ludhianvi, one of the songs that S.D. Berman composed for the film was based on a tune from the British movie Harry Black, which was later released in India as Harry Black and the Tiger. Berman was initially not happy, was initially he wasn't happy about copying a Western tune, quote, but later changed it so well that when the producer of Harry Black and the Tiger visited India, he heard the song and not only failed to recognize the tune, but commended Dada on it. After a slow opening, Piazza went on to be a major commercial success of that year. It gave Guru Dutt the confidence to make a repeat on a grand scale. However, his film Kagaz K-Pool went on to be a commercial disaster. The movie picked up a cult following in the 80s long after the director had died. Wahida Raymond's character in Piazza, was based on a real-life character. Uh, Abrar Alvi and his friends were visiting Bombay, and they decided to visit the red-light area. Alvi got talking to a girl who called herself Gulabo. According to Alvi, quote, "...as I left, she thanked me in a broken voice, saying that it was the first time that she had been treated with respect in a place where she heard only abuses. I used her exact words in the film." In 2015, looking back at the film, the Huffington Post India said, More than 50 years later, Piazza continues to remain a formidable work of cinema that presents the art of filmmaking at its finest. The movie fulfills in its absolute sense the real purpose of cinema, to entertain and educate simultaneously. In 2010, Time Magazine listed the film among the best movies of all time, saying the writer-producer-director star paints a glamorous portrait of an artist, isolation through uh, dappled imagery, and the sensitive picturizing of S.D. Berman's famous songs. And Raymond, in in her screen debut, is sultry radiant, a woman to bring out the poet and any man on screen or in the audience. On that note, let's talk a little bit about Piazza, which was a film that I was—I think I talked a little bit about last week at the end. Was kind of excited to see. You know, I, I'm a big fan of Satyajit Ray and his films, but at the same time, his his output is kind of a small portion of what Indian cinema is, is classified as. I mean, he's, he's more of the art cinema while, uh, especially even in, at this time when Guru Dutt was working uh, the much more popular, uh, you know, you had this kind of Western influence uh, that would later kind of form into the Bollywood film. I, I know this one is kind of looked at as a, as a classic Bollywood film, but at this point, this is kind of in the midst of the 1950s, which seemed to be India's golden age for movies. And this one really blew me away. I, I, I kind of was was uh struggling a little bit to, to to get interest in it kind of during the first act, uh. But whenever it switches and he dies but doesn't die, I think the movie like takes it to this whole different level. Um. But I'm curious what you all made of of Piazza.
2: Um. It's. I was um. Really. Struck by a lot of the sequences In this movie um, And really, really taken You know, had kind of my breath taken away By some of the Images in this film You know, it's sort of a I don't know It's, it's just, you know I don't remember wh- Where I heard this You know, maybe in some class or something or Maybe I read it somewhere But I remember once, like, hearing somebody talk about You know, kind of you know, in Bollywood cinema, you know, you, you can't really talk about musicals in the same way that you can in American cinema just because, you know, every film, pretty much every Bollywood film, you know, has, the, you know, the musical sequences built into it. That's just like the the kind of the, the over-arching sort of language of the industry. Um, but, you know, this is a very, like... Odd, I think, mixture of of genres, you know, um, because you have these musical sequences, which are often very dreamlike and sort of separate from the the rea- the kind of the filmic reality in some way, you know. They seem to take place in another time or or some other space, um, but it's also, you know, um, before we started recording. Dylan, you know, you said that this was kind of like a noir um, musical, you know, um, noir melodrama, which I think is really true. You know, it's like it's it's not really a mystery, but it okay. is in a way, you know, at least, you know, in the, the, the last part of the film, it sort of becomes that a little bit. Um, but there's something sort of like I don't know, there's there's like a. A weird sort of, you know, like there's something about noir movies that you can't really quite like get your fingers around. Like it's, you know, it's kind of like smoke or, or something, you know. And there's something about this movie that feels like that to me where it's like, it's just this sort of like slippery thing, you know. It's like, it's romantic, but has this sort of strange comic relief too. Very melodramatic, very, you know, has this sort of noirish quality, but also... these musical sequences and sometimes it's almost like neorealist but other times it's like totally surreal so that was just something what really struck me is just like all of the tendencies going on in this movie
1: yeah uh i'll i'll bounce off that too that um i mean to that point then about noir because at least earlier on or what was trying to be captured a lot noir was you know, life on the streets kind of thing, right. Actually taking the camera outside and yeah, making it more of like a, a realist kind of thing. But ultimately what a lot of noir ends up doing is making this weird heightened version of reality where there's all these really dark spaces and everybody's smoking and it all is just kind of in this, you know, tense uh, space that they're conjuring up. And so, I mean, in this one, um, you know, you kind of yeah, have this, i mean to me what feels similar to like a, a noir cinematography where like anytime it's on like dude's face there that there's like a way that they're like conjuring shadows across it it like the, it like falls off there's like real high contrast and it's just this like yeah i mean it kind of yeah it feels like a noir movie and it feels kind of scary in that way where everybody's just kind of uh unless you know you're more like at a dinner party scene which we can talk about later that you know there's these spaces that uh this guy who's more or less without a home is wandering through and uh, trying to deal with and figure out why all this is happening. And I mean, at that point, uh, being a poet, and so um, I mean, and like with a lot of noir too. But uh, in this, in this case, as you say, Nathan, that it just touches on so many tones that noir wouldn't even touch. Sometimes that it's like it's a kind of melancholy and a kind of funny and, <laughs> and it's all of those, all of those things and ones, but then also can break in musical numbers, which as far as I know, uh, no, no self-serious noir would uh, try to make uh, musical numbers in the middle of it. So that's, uh, yeah, it makes it, you know, at least from, you know, an American film spectator from the outside, it's, it feels like a special, special mixture, special thing.
2: When it, it, you know, and even kind of like, there's a, f- for me, it feels like a sort of meta-genre, almost, where it sort of feels like, almost, this movie sort of feels kind of like a religious parable, almost. At least the sort of ending, where you know, he becomes, you know, everybody thinks Vijay is dead. His poems are published and become very successful because of this myth that that grows up around him. You know, everybody's saying, I knew VJ, I knew Vijay. Um, and when he comes back and he finally convinces everyone that he's VJ and they accept him, like, he realizes, you know, that this is just, like, all of, like, these people aren't actually interested in what his poetry was saying. You know, they're just, like, interested in... Being close to his success, you know, trying to like capture some of whatever he has. So he just like totally rejects them and goes off, you know, leaves, like, I don't know, goes away. Yeah, you could say. But, you know, it, it almost feels like this sort of like, I don't know, like the Buddha like rejecting his, you know, uh, earthly possessions or something. Like it just sort of has this very like, you know, there's a sort of like morality here that feels, um, like you know like it's like there's something like mythic to the story you know it almost feels like it kind of takes place to me like to me at least it felt like it almost took place like beyond kind of like time you know almost like it sort of felt like it could have taken place in just this sort of totally imagined world
1: um i mean and and to the point of what Zach brought up about, um, I mean, you know, in that case, they were actually going to try to, uh, film in a red light district, but, uh, they got kicked out, but most of the movie, um, Oh God. I mean, this is a weird comparison, but, uh, or not really, but it's like a one from the heart, right? Like where it's all these like reconstructed sets that can like make it feel real. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, if you catch it, the peripheries of it, you can feel that it's a constructed set that they built. Um, And I don't know, there's, yeah, something that I think can help build its, yeah, either timeless or parable or even dreamlike quality, even after it's like capturing bits of, you know, I guess, truth on some level. I know uh, (laughs) at the beginning you were
0: talking about it's difficult to talk about uh, like Bollywood compared to American musicals. Um, But I think that there is somewhat, at least in this version, there is kind of this Western influence to it in terms of, as you've been describing some of the the musical sequences. Um, I mean, like the fantasy element reminds you of something in like... you know a fred astaire movie you know they they, and they almost kind of mock what that looks like in that one sequence and singing in the rain when you have like the whole break where gene kelly is just going off on this long uh sequence that almost derails the whole plot of the movie uh and so it, it, it kind of has this western influence where you can see the you know that Guru Dud is familiar with what Hollywood is doing, but I but at the same time I agree with you, Nathan, that it has this like mystical quality to it, so that even though there is kind of this like almost silly melodrama you know at parts i mean there, there's, there's there's that one sequence at the party where he's like sad and like he overcomes his sadness by it just starts like singing his poem uh while the you know after listening to the other two poets who, who sing their crap and uh but there is there's something so uh so convincing and so uh I don't, I don't know if it's 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 Guru Dutt's performance or the way that he just kind of frames the, his character in this, but it doesn't come off as as hokey or you know silly. I don't, I don't know. Did, did you guys see kind of that Western influence in, in the in the musical numbers?
2: Well, one thing that I felt like I don't know if this was how it felt to you guys, but I one thing that I felt like maybe set this apart from some. Um, musical, you know, uh, American musicals, is that I felt like some of the the musical sequences were a lot longer um, than I was used to. I don't know if that was like just my perception of them, but for some reason they felt like much more extended than um, I feel like I'm really used to, or or at least in some way they felt like more separate... um, from, like, the rest of the, the space that the movie is set in. Um, like, you know, there's that... I'm having a hard time remember exactly where the movie was, but there's, like, that one musical number where, like, he's in a tux and, like, you know, it's the sort of dream sequence. And I just felt like... like every time um i don't know I, I feel like in a lot of at least hollywood musicals there's m- sometimes more of an attempt to weave the the song like into the kind of main continuous narrative space uh, aside from something like an american the end of america an american in paris where it's just like a crazy fantastical sequence or the broadway melody sequence in singing in the rain um but i like it just felt like a little more separation between like those worlds except for like when he starts singing you know in public you know for the like crowd or something
1: yeah so um is that sequence that uh you're talking about the um one after yeah. he meets up um with a girl he met at school yeah and it's like a daydream uh the, the the bit's almost funny uh, after it ends. It's like this motherfucker is daydreaming over here about the girl that he's sitting next to, and then he wakes up, she's gone. And it's just like, oh no, what's happening? Um, but yeah, no, that's a very, um, as you say, just like a separate um, separate, separate out from the rest of the reality of the movie because it's like all these um, uh, curtains and like p- balloons, and they're all just kind of dancing. But it's, I mean, it's sad too, because if this is a, this guy's daydream and it's about um um uh, the girl minna uh like teasing him or like saying it's like you know um uh, you can keep presenting me your heart but uh i'll just ignore it and walk away um and that's kind of being the um crux of that and then of course you know he snaps out of his daydream or whatever and she's gone and left the note and it's you know i don't know there's that's yeah a heck of a heck of a sequence even if I guess maybe the thing is, is, like, sometimes, this, you know,
2: the musical sequences themselves aren't that maybe necessarily, like, different from something in American musical. But it's just maybe, like, what the contrast between those sequences and the rest of the movie that makes them feel very different. Because, like, for example, you know, in this movie, like, that the sequence where, you know, he, he runs into this, like, extremely emaciated homeless guy gives him his jacket with the poem inside and then the guy runs after him and gets hit by the train. Just like, you know, there would never be someone who looked like that, you know in an American movie. You know, if like it would be this probably just like friendly, charming, like little homeless guy, and he would also not die probably in this brutal way like that. He would probably just be this like sweet little sequence where they like where like toothless Dick Van Dyke you know like shows up and like sings a little song about like keeping your head up or something. Um, but it's just there's like this like extremely melodramatic and in, like intense melodramatic contrast between the, like, highs of this movie and the lows, and it's just willingness to show, like, extreme poverty, and to, you know, show these just, like, depressed, dejected, starving people, is, like, so different from American, I mean, particularly American musicals, which are, like, you know, the the dream factory par excellence, you know, the, like, epitome of escapist cinema, is MGM you know, golden age Hollywood musicals. There are elements of that in here, but it's used to such different effect, you know, to this almost like, you know, Brechtian like social commentary effect where it's like the, the, the fantasy of the musical sequences is just to point out how dire the
1: rest of the world is. Right. I mean, and I mean, almost to your point about like um uh, it being in this kind of, uh, I don't want to say a meta movie in that way, but it's, you know, dealing with that tension of both of those, both of those feelings at once. Right. I mean, like all the poetry and the music uh, that informs uh, the set pieces of the movie end up talking a lot about that. I mean, I mean, to the point that like, you know uh, it kind of feels weird when it can separate itself out from, you know, the people talking as they normally do and kind of a, a tonal way and then kind of falling into uh, a musical but um you know it kind of in each different set pieces they kind of get into it in different ways one i mean so like a specific one i'm thinking about um is uh i guess <laughs> just guys reciting poetry at this party uh at the uh, where he ends up um getting a job um at one point um that we find out it's uh, Minna's husband uh, who get, got him the job at this uh, publishing company as an assistant. And he shows up and gets humiliated by, it's like, he doesn't really want them there as a party guest, but as a servant to serve tea. And there's poets there that are, just start reciting lines to the, oh, wow, that's wonderful. Uh, please do more uh, crowd that's around. I couldn't tell if that's like they meant it or if they're just kind of being... A little obsequious I, I i couldn't really tell um and so at one point like he's um um guru dude's character uh uh is like on the periphery of 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 the party and just starts reciting lines i mean and the poets end up backing him up basically saying um you know it's not just a, a privileged rich person's um a prerogative to learn and recite poetry that it's um you know <laughs> even the servants that kind of thing and so I um, mean, that's um one of the two sequences that like um makes this distance connection with minna um because everybody else kind of hears this as you know uh really powerful pleasant poetry but it's just like really every time he recites uh something she just like falls to shreds right um and it's always like a silent weeping um and i don't know i mean i guess that the specific point being that it's the movie is able to get into these musical like high what we'd consider even like melodramatic moments from like different vectors right it could even start like as something as like just reciting poetry at a party versus you know uh the masseuse you know uh <laughs> basically providing his own jingle while he's saying it's like yeah uh come to me i'll i'll, I'll uh rub your head and it's uh uh, I got oils, I got, um, uh, machine oils and things like that. And it's just, um, I mean, it is, it is, you know, to think
2: about, to place this movie in historical context, you know, being set and made not too long after India's independence from, from great Britain. Um, it does, you know, it, it really asks this question of kind of like in this new democratic society, like what is the social value of art? What good is art? What purpose does it have? Um, and it's interesting because in the filmmaking of the movie itself, you know, in the form of the movie, I feel like what it says is basically what VJ says, you know, like this is for everyone, you know, this is not just, you know, this can be, you know, the, the flowery, the, the, you know, to, depictions of nature and love and and whatnot, but it also has this social value and and can reveal ills and shed light on, you know, the problems in society. Um, And that's, you know, in the movie, you know, poetry has this we see those different functions of poetry, like you say, you know, we also see, you know, poem as jingle as the sort of commercial thing, you know, that has a, has a, has a role in the marketplace. Um, and I think that, you know, with the different types of musical sequences that you have here, you know, with these like, you know, the really heart wrenching number that ends the movie, you know, where you see this crowd of people and you hear basically VJ singing this monologue of him, like realizing that he doesn't, love this world anymore, that he doesn't feel connected to this world, and, like, he's not going to do anything for it. You know, so I feel like in the form of the movie, it's very, like, yes, art, like, art can have a good, you know, contribute good to society, but it's weird because I feel like in the, like, the actual story... Is kind of like as as much as I was really taken with like a lot of the images in this movie and a lot of the filmmaking, the story kind of like didn't sit quite right with me because the ending sort of almost feels like you know this like Eisenstein movie with like you know all of the like. The, you know the, the crowd and like all the fists and like all these bodies but it's <laughs> yeah. just this like you okay. know, total rejection of like the collective as a complete kind of mob and instead of saying like let's like you know stay in society and try to like build it up and make it better it's just totally rejecting that and saying like we need to leave the mass and the crowd the unruly mob who are not good enough to understand our poetry and we need to get out of dodge and and, like, go start over just, you know, Adam and Eve style. Um So, like, I don't know. It's just, like, an odd tension because it feels like, you know, like, it's in the form again. Of, like, very democratic. Like, art does have value. But the, it, the story is just such, like, so almost, like, nihilistic. Just, like, such a downer.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, I mean, to, from the beginning to the end of the movie, I mean, it opens right with uh VJ just... Uh, appreciating nature, right? Like he's just hanging out in a park somewhere, just kind of like taking in the trees and some birds flying and like watches a bee as it goes around pollinating. Um, and the bee lands and Vijay's still watching and the, just some person just steps right on the bee. And that kind of like sets the kind of, at least the tone <laughs> for <her> where some <laughs> of right? That's the lexicon of the <laughs> entire film. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, to that point, it's like... Um, You know when we find out he's a poet and that he's going to sell his poetry to this publisher that's just like you know why don't you talk about flowers and you know all the good stuff and ladies curves and whatever else and it's like uh well uh you know uh, i guess i could but you know these other things and oh so you probably don't want me to talk about that dude just stomping the hell out of that bee, huh that's probably not what you want (laughs) um but no that's a a really interesting tension that you bring up by the end and i mean as you say i'm not sure that the movie does much to resolve it because it almost frames it as like an abstaining version of, of like, well, I just need to go out and see what the rest of the world is or just be by myself. And I guess that, you know, I don't know how they would actually emotionally resolve the conflict of the movie cause it's kind of sets out of him being rejected by most of his family, except his mom. And then he feels conflicted about his mom, uh, later on when she passes away and he wasn't there and didn't even hear about it until their brothers go to like a river and, you know, mourn for her, like go, at least go through the rights. And he has to ask what they're, uh, what they're there for. Um, and, you know, as, as we kind of hinted at by the end, like he ends up getting in that publishing deal, Uh, with that guy posthumously or what is presumed after he gets hit by that train um, because of uh, what's her, what's her name? Gulab. I I think it changes depending on who's talking to her. Um, I think it's Gulabo or Gulab uh, depending, but like she shows up. I mean, and she means it in full earnestness of like, I really love his poetry and uh, I I think it should get published, but then it sets off this chain of events of, I mean, the husband, the guy, the, the modern publishing company or whatever, Like already seems like he wants to humiliate um, Vijay and hates his guts because like uh, he has his wife's attention even after um, Minna and him get married um, and is just super jealous about it. And, you know, even like giving him a job, but then ultimately humiliating him in so many ways. And so the final, I guess, humiliation, or at least part of the movie, um, hints at is um, uh, him just running uh running wild with with his poetry right like publishing his book yeah that's fine but then just making massive amounts of profit off of it and just yeah setting up the cult of this guy's image after he's dead and um i mean even to the point like it gets so depressing that uh him and who's ever supposed to be this uh, vj's best friend or whatever that we see a couple times that he shows up at his house um i don't want to say best friend whatever a friend that um you know, they visit him at a, like a sane asylum and then, and then it's like, no, that's not him because they're still making money off of him. Right. So it's like, they don't want to like admit that that's it, that he's still alive. Cause as soon as he shows back up, then they can't easily make a profit off of his image anymore. Right. Cause it like completely changes the, the dynamic. And it's only until, uh, you know, the masseuse, uh, the guy that goes around is trying to, uh, relax people from their daily woes by giving up a massage, uh, like, finally sees sees him there and helps him, like, escape, that then the rest of the movie uh, uh, plays out to where he, not only does he feel alienated um, as he was before, but now he's entirely not who he is because of this image of this dead poet who's, you know, talking about the woes of society. But everybody knows this poet and the name, but, like, there's this one sequence where they're, like, on this um, trolley car, right? And this one guy's talking about how great of a poet this guy is and that, yeah, oh yeah, he totally knew him when he was still alive. And then he actually came to him with advice a couple of times. Um, but, you know, uh, lo and behold, of course, that he's actually standing next to VJ himself, the poet, and he just does not know who that guy is. And is actually in the way of him talking to somebody who's across the trolley. And it's, yeah, and it's, it's uh, that, that whole thing that leads into the final sequence of him basically saying, burn it down. Right. <laughs> like i don't know this uh this society anymore and um if this is what this is i don't know i don't want it to call it mine because it's not um i mean so i guess it doesn't it or maybe it couldn't really or they uh good or it and um the screenwriters working on the movie couldn't find a way to get it to a, a happier place right it's just uh it kind of they were like, we're not working on that level. We're singing pain. <laughs> right. We're singing pain. Right. I mean, it's so right. Like just about every uh musical sequence outside of, you know, the comic relief with the Masseuse uh Abdul, that is generally uh generally a sorrowful tone, right? Because um I mean another another sequence that is just like um so is is the first sequence of him seeing Minna for the first time again after um I think seeing at her from a distance uh, that got her to start thinking about her again Um, is some college reunion thing um, that uh, one of their classmates ropes him into and throws him up on the stage to recite poetry because somebody ditches at the last minute or just doesn't show up to do it. And, you know, uh, (laughs) his refrain of like his uh, philosophy and his own poetry is that he like puts out what he gets in from the world. Right. And so he gets up there and, and, but of course he <laughs> he talks about how fucking, uh, everything is sad and that, uh, you know, he doesn't really feel great about things and, um, to it like being immediately in tension with the audience. Uh, it's like one of the people in the back is like, what? sing a happy song. This is supposed to be a happy occasion. What are you doing? And so, I mean, he ends up finishing it out and Minas of course, a wreck again, uh, I guess for many reasons of seeing him for the first time and forever. And, uh, uh him basically singing a lament or a torch song (laughs) for minna um i mean to at least talk about the technique of the movie um and specifically how some of the musical sequences are shot it's i mean you know shouldn't be too surprising that a lot of it can feel like a dance or even like a ballet but some of it feels so discontinuous and jagged that even like the push-ins like kind of feel like they hurt um I mean, even outside of that one specific sequence I was talking about, there's um, one later on where uh, Vijay is, um, this has to be like in the back half of the movie, where he's like standing on a balcony um, and Gulab, um, um, there's like some concert going on below them. And like, it's, of course, very um, relevant emotional lyrics that are happening. And she's like trying to slowly get closer and closer to him as like his back's turned down this balcony. And, you know, she wants to connect with him, even though um up until that point, they've only had like kind of uh tense interactions of him wanting to get his poetry back from her because um he doesn't, you know, he wants to buy it back and she bought it as like waste paper and found it as poetry and it's been keeping it and using it as like um ways to seduce men or whatever to get uh, get him to come upstairs. And, um, you know, only feels like she has pity for him and that's not really like what he wants or what, (laughs) what he's, uh, looking for. Um, and so there's this, this sequence towards the end where like, she's really, really trying to connect to him that it's like, it's all this discontinuous, like jagged, like getting closer and closer, but can't quite get to it. And there's like dollies in and dollies out that feel like, uh, almost like, um, bit of a vertigo like situation of a dance where it's just like she keeps trying to get close, but you know, as she does, she immediately pulls back knowing that uh, it probably can't be. I mean, like just as like a point of like in characterization that it's that it's a hell of a sequence and really sad. Um, And so, I mean, to, to your point of even, or like uh, to what a, apparently the studio wanted uh, do, to do with the end uh it also kind of feels weird that they end up getting together and leaving side by side at the end um i mean i don't know if i would have felt as complicated about that um if i didn't hear about the production of it but it does leave a different tone to how they kind of leave side by side when apparently he wanted him to just be alone <laughs> at the end away from the crowd so um I mean, because to me, at that point, their like relationship was in this, you know, place of, I mean, disconnection. I mean, or like a asymmetry. So,
0: any uh, any final thoughts about the movie before we wrap up? Uh, it's it. I, I, I this is the first Bollywood film that we've kind of covered, so I'm curious uh, if uh, this should be something that we should kind of kind of explore in the future because I think that especially Western audiences are probably not. It's taking the time necessarily to study the history of this type of film
2: no, it definitely has uh me very excited to <sighs> get a little more familiar with with Bollywood. I mean, I think even if, you know, even though it's a huge problem for American and and Western cinephiles, you know, ignoring Bollywood cinema and just Indian cinema in general, um, you know, I think that a lot of people at least are, like, familiar with the sort of pastiche kind of of, like, contemporary Bollywood trips, know, you have an image in your mind of what that looks like, and it's just, like, very interesting to go back a little bit and see the sort of the, the ancestors of that, you know, and to see kind of the beginnings of, of certain styles and, and um, certain forms taking shape. Um, so it's really interesting. I don't know. This is just like a very interesting fusion of entertainment and um, social, you know, social realism, social commentary. Um, and I'm very intrigued both to see more films by Guru Dut, but um, just more Bollywood in general.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that for sure. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I'm not sure. Like we've kind of been hanging out in the 50s so far, right? With um, Hindi films, I don't quite know uh, what our next step is. Um, but
0: uh, 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 oh, I take it back. We 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 have a Bollywood sequence in our in our history that Jackie Chan. <laughs> oh, damn it, Zach! <laughs> oh my god! Uh, is that not uh, is that not counting? Uh, I forgot.
1: I, I forgot. was. Oh, it was,
2: I, I it was only earlier out. this
1: year, and I've forgotten. <laughs> Uh, but, um, I mean, to the, to that point, at least, uh, I'm ignoring you, Zach. I'm sorry.
2: <laughs> oh, we also have, uh, the love guru too. So Wait, what do we have? We're doing the oh, love guru. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> we're really, we're doing great. We're uh, so. picking it up.
1: But, yeah. uh, <laughs> to that point of like, um, interesting tensions that, uh, a Bollywood movie, or at least, um, this one and even, um kind of in a more peripheral way in Satyajit Ray's movies that we've uh, seen or talked about um, is just how, it's hard for me because I don't know that many languages in India. So, I mean, there's Hindi um, and a whole bunch of, a lot of others, but uh, it's just surprising to me. I mean, if this is supposed to be a post-independence production, right, that how many is like as a, a hierarchical or as a status symbol that like English gets just like injected into the movie. Right. Like that. I mean, particularly we get a lot of it from the uh, modern publisher guy uh, who wears suits all the time. And, um, yeah, just kind of almost uses English as like a bludgeon. It's always it always always feels like it gets used to like snipe at somebody. Um, That's I mean, sometimes it is as casual or, you know, when they're in that school sequence. So, I mean, you even has like a a college or education sequence where you have this uh, teacher up there that's mostly trying to get people to speak in English and uh, even answer uh, to this like, present in English and call people sirs and stuff, that, um, that I feel like there'd be a lot of um, interest um, and value in that part of it, um, including the great musical sequences that it just kind of makes clear uh, kind of a, a tension that uh, I think can be easy to forget about. <laughs> Uh, If if we don't even like start watching more Bollywood movies, so, uh, well, so yeah, I'm down for
0: that. As long as it's not including Mike Myers or Jackie Chan. (laughs) I mean. Thank you, Chad. All right. Well, that will wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Cinematary. On Twitter at handle at Cinematary. And on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash Cinematary, where we put all the movies that we talked about in this episode. Uh, also, you can... Join us on Patreon, you know, anything kind of promoting the site and the podcast is helpful. You know, a tweet saying, hey, we like this podcast is is helpful. But if you'd like to to pledge some money and help pay our writers uh, who you know are, are doing a fantastic job on the website please think about joining us on patreon you can go to patreon.com slash but we want to thank our patrons so far uh thank you cam chad Newsom, christopher metcalf eric Dukowski, uh graham jones harry eskin maggie marie Barty matthew lingo miranda barnwall ron hayes tyler chandler whitney real ross and will carroll thank you so much for your patronage uh next week we will be continuing our young critics watch old movies series with 1969's putney swope uh which should be an exciting one it it was one that got evoked a lot last year i know it i think it recently had a had a restoration done and then was was named as a big uh influencer for sorry to bother you which was kind of a little bit of a indie conversation so uh i'm excited to dig into this one and see uh how the better robert downey lives his life (laughs) uh but thank you guys for listening we'll see you next week